everyone, and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we turn our all-seeing eye to the world of comic book adaptations and try to sort the super from the substandard. Who is we? Well, I'm your host, Andrew, and not as usual, I'm not joined by my co-host, Mick, which might be a double negative, but let's just keep on pushing. (laughs) Uh, Mick couldn't make it, but Graham's here instead. Hello there. It's been a while, hasn't it? It has indeed. I come up, what was the last like horrible piece of absolute dross we inflicted on you? Was it man thing? It might have been man thing. It's not surprising that it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. If anything, the surprising thing is that you've come back. <laughs> yes. But back I am. Back I am. Indeed. And... So far, I'm enjoying it. I think the first minute's been quality. Good. Well, it's all downhill from here, but... <laughs> well, we would say that, although probably not, because this week uh, we're actually covering a film at your very own behest. That's true, yes. Very rare that I managed to find one that you haven't already got scheduled, but that did happen. Indeed, and that film... I mean, as you've probably seen from the title of the podcast, it's not like a big secret, is it? It's Ghost World. It is indeed, yes. And for anyone unfamiliar, this is the 2001 film directed by the excellently named Terry Zweigoff and written by Zweigoff and Daniel Close. And Daniel Close is also who wrote the comic and did the artings. Yes, he uh, he famously once remarked when he was asked whether he'd considered having someone else draw his work or whether he'd considered drawing someone else's script. He said, I don't even like anyone else to do the page numbers. God, that is a proper artist, isn't it? That's, a, that's an old, uh, yeah. <laughs> so... In what's going to be probably a break from the usual show tradition, I'm going to ask you, Graham, are you familiar with Ghost World? And you're probably going to say yes. I I would, yes, I would say that I am fairly familiar with Ghost World. Um, We should probably talk about the source for a bit, though, because I was... I think I was aware of the comic before the film because when it was published in a collected edition in the late 90s after having been serialized in Close's comic 8-Ball, it got, it got one of those flurries of comics have grown up headlines that I think listeners to this show will be aware happen once every five years or so, like clockwork. Um but I did think it sounded fascinating and I bought the trade paperback and I, I have been, I would say, a fan of Close ever since. I think he's either him or Alan Moore. Yeah, probably Alan Moore has done enough things that have lost me over the years to make Daniel Close probably my favourite comic book creator at this point. Yeah, I can certainly see that in terms of kind of batting averages. Yeah, I mean, Moore, when he's on it, is amazing, but there's the problem that no one has ever got all the way through Jerusalem. Yeah. I also feel like of the two, Daniel Close, I'm less likely to turn around and flee in terror from. (laughs) Yes. 
Well, that actually makes me quite like Alan Moore, to be honest. He's, he's upholding for the alternative comics, either the tradition from the Silver Age, where any sufficiently great comics creator will turn out to be a screaming weirdo once they hit a certain marker in their life. You know, he's, he's like the Neil Adams when he got into expanding Earth theory of the... Uh, of the comics of grown up age. It wasn't Neil Adams who decided the earth was expanding, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. God, one day I'm going to have to show you the comic book that he did, like in the, I want to say 2010s, which is Batman basically discovering all like the weird hidden <laughs> earth stuff that, that Neil <laughs> Adams is obsessed with. <laughs> And also at one point he just whips out two pistols and is like, eh, maybe I just use guns now. See, that's what the, like, more recent generation of comics creators have over the older generations in that if they decide to go completely barmy and explore some weird personal crank obsession, they can just create a character to do that. Whereas for most of the 20th century, you know, you had to try and pitch your editors on the guys i just i just think donald duck would be really into healing geocentrism yeah i mean see also the entirety of chris chris claremont's x-men <laughs> which is just how many of my fetishes can i fit in a single issue and it's all of them <laughs> yes there's a, I think it was Elizabeth Sandifer who came up with the idea of Claremont's Law, which is that certain male creators will hit a point where the specific kind of horniness they have is mistaken for female empowerment. Joss Whedon being the other great example of this. Oh boy, yeah, let's, let's skedaddle away from Joss Whedon as fast as we can. Let's actually, yes. So, yes, uh, back to Ghost World. This might also be another earth-shattering revelation for the podcast. I I mean, I've been at least aware of Ghost World because, I mean, it's like you say, is held up as one of those big examples of comics aren't just for kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yeah. I actually only read it um, four days ago now. Excellent. I'm really happy. Yeah, because, I mean, as, as much as this might spoil the entire format of the show, thought, you know what, I very much enjoyed the Ghost World movie. I may as well finally read the comic. And also very much enjoyed the comic. That's I great. I mean, I'm I mean on... in as much as you can use a word like enjoy for Ghost World. <laughs> I got a friend a copy of Close's later comic, The Death Ray, for her birthday once. And I remember that as soon as she opened it, a mutual friend just leaned over and went, how's it going? Are you depressed yet? And yeah, that is the tenor of quite a lot of Close's stuff. It is. It's also, I feel like this is one of the few works that truly gets the being a teenager is just an absolute shit show, isn't it? It is, yes. I'm fascinated that these things always happen at the turn of a decade. You will have something like, you know, this or Heather's or something which looks back on 
uh, the previous decade of teen-focused media and goes, yeah, not anywhere near horrible enough, is it? Yeah, no, it's... Basically, it's also weird that this came out, like, before the absolute deluge of, like, mid to late 2000s coming-of-age comedies about, oh, I'm just a, a bit of a sad boy and maybe there's a special girl out there who's got, like, a streak of colour in her hair. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think of it like that. It's funny. I always saw it as, as like, being anti-American pie, anti-she's all that, that kind of thing. But, yeah, it does strike me, now you've said it, that this is a very good antidote to that kind of manic pixie dream girl stage in American cinema. Yeah. I mean, again, I guess it's kind of more evidence of this being kind of a cyclical thing mm. because I feel like you then had Scott Pilgrim which came out which was very much a kind of parody of that sort of idea and kind of going yeah but what if actually maybe this guy just sucks <laughs> yes yeah but that's yeah. probably true um so you, you'd you'd read it for the first time uh you said and I mean it is very different isn't it the comic to the movie, despite Close adapting it himself. Yeah, I think um, we could probably get into it a bit now, because I think probably one of the big differences is a necessary difference, because the comic doesn't really have that much of a plot, does it? Not at all. It's very episodic. You know, it was published in consecutive issues of Eight Ball, so... There's, it's very well structured in terms of at the end of each chapter, something from the start of the chapter will come back as a kind of a punchline or an ironic counterpoint, but it's not plotted in the way that a, a graphic novel would be. Yeah, and, and deliberately so we should like point out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because obviously it's that whole idea of when you're a teen and like you're kind of in between school and getting your first job or going off to college... And you're just kind of wandering about. Yeah, it's about the kind of banality of that. It's never clarified where they live because it's one of those parts of America that just looks exactly the same as every other small town in America. And yeah, the part of the comic is just about observing that kind of that point where it feels like it, it's going to be an endless cycle of just doing the same boring thing over and over again. Yeah, well, I think they even have the one issue where they go on a road trip and just they go to like a different town. It's like, oh, this is exactly the same. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, so the big alteration is that in the in the book, the only male figure in Edith and Becky, the heroines' lives, is their friend Josh, who is in the movie. Uh, but there's another character, another male lead in the movie, uh, Seymour, played by the great Steve Buscemi. Which, I mean, do you think he was cast in the role, or did they just say, we need, like, just the saddest sack of a man imaginable, and he just <laughs> sort of materialised? <laughs> It is it, it it is 
like you don't want to call it the ultimate Steve Buscemi roles because he's also you know been very good. I mean, he's good good in so many things, but for some people he's iconic for his role in Fargo. For some people, Reservoir Dogs is the definitive one. But yeah, this this feels like one of those definitive Steve Buscemi roles where you think if Steve Buscemi wasn't around, no one else could fill this role. Yeah, it's a, it's almost like the other side of the Bashimi coin. Like mm. you have frothing wild-eyed maniac. Yeah. And just absolute down on his luck. Just like a living embodiment of a basset hound. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So I guess with that, should I uh, get into a synopsis? Please, yeah. So, uh, this will, of course, contain spoilers for the film. Uh, After graduating high school, best friends Enid, Thora Birch, and Rebecca, Scarlett Johansson, but like a weird sort of young Scarlett Johansson who just looks like older Scarlett Johansson, but if she got taken out of the oven a bit too early. (laughs) Yeah, young Scarlett Johansson is like... You think there's been this weird Polar Express thing where they've CGI'd Scarlett Johansson's face onto a child, and then you think, oh no, she was young. She was really young when she made this. Yeah, I, I think she was about 16 years old. Yeah, which, you know, I, I'm aware she was a child actress, but it's it's still remarkable to think how long she's been famous, really, yeah. It's also, it's not right, because what you're supposed to do is be a child actor, and then you're supposed to go away for a decade, and then you come back, and you look completely different. Yeah, yeah. The, the, you're not supposed to a, look like your older self. We have a complete fossil record of Scarlett Johansson, and that's quite odd, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, this is why the Ryan Johnson film Looper exists, because no one in Hollywood <laughs> understands how aging actually works. <laughs> Are you telling me that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not the spit double of Bruce Willis? Well, maybe if we slap some prosthetics on him. <laughs> also, I feel like I said prosthetics a bit like pathetics, and that was very appropriate. <laughs> The plot, anyway, though. Yes. yes. So, Enid and Rebecca plan on moving in together. However, Enid's diploma is withheld and she must attend a summer art course to graduate. While bored one day, the girls spot a personal ad in the newspaper in which a man asks the woman he met at the airport to meet up with him. Pretending to be the woman, Enid rings the man and agrees to a date with him as a prank. The girls and their friend Josh, Brad Renfro, watch the man show up to a diner alone and begin to make fun of him. However, after seeing how lonely he seems, Enid begins to feel sympathetic towards him and they follow him back to his apartment. Enid then approaches the man at a garage sale and buys a record off him. He introduces himself as Seymour, and this is, of course, Steve Buscemi. Uh, The two strike up a friendship and Enid decides to help the lonely Seymour find a date. However, this, along with Enid's reluctance to get a job or take the idea of moving seriously, drives a wedge wedge between her and Becky. Uh, Eventually, Seymour is contacted by Dana, Stacey Travis, 
the woman he put a personal ad in for. At her request, Seymour tells Enid that they should stop seeing each other. Uh, things get worse for Enid when a poster she has borrowed from Seymour's workplace to use as part of her art project is deemed offensive at a local art show, causing her to fail her art class and miss out on a college scholarship. Distraught, she goes to Seymour in the middle of the night and the two end up sleeping together. The next day, Seymour breaks up with Dana. He then looks for Enid but can't find her. He ends up fired from his job when, uh, after the poster ends up in a local newspaper and he learns from Becky that Enid was the one who originally made the prank phone call. Upset, Seymour ends up getting in a fight and is hospitalised. Enid appears and apologises, explaining that she likes Seymour but basically doesn't really know what she wants out of life. That night, Enid walks past Norman, an old man who, is, who she has seen throughout the film, waiting at an out-of-service bus stop. However, this time, a bus appears, and he gets on it. Making up her mind to leave her old life behind, Enid returns to the bus stop and takes a bus out of the city. And that's basically Ghost World. That's your film, yes. It's surprisingly kind of tough to synopsize. It's funny, that, it... isn't it? Yeah. Because uh, I've noticed that a lot of the bits that people remember vividly from it are the things that have no direct impact on the plot, like uh, Blue's Hammer or the Nunchuck Guy. Oh, Doug. Doug the Nunchuck Guy, a hero for our times. Just wandering around shirtless, pulling out nunchucks. <laughs> Getting into random fights with convenience store owners. It's it's quite a life. I think that guy ended up in like a Red Hot Chili Peppers video around the same time, based on how indelible his performance in this is. It's a very strange career path. It is, but I mean, to be fair, if you watch this film, that man is the most Red Hot Chili Peppers looking guy I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. Like, I have thought you were going to say, it turns out he was actually all of the Red Hot Chili Peppers all at once. Yeah. And I could, yes, that makes sense. I mean, if that was the case, I'd have held this back for pop screen, obviously. Of course. Yeah. But yeah, fantastic stuff. And I mean, while we're on a musical note, I mentioned Blues Hammer because I just love that gag so much where Seymour's great passion is vintage blues. And he has this kind of boring and nerdy, but also kind of deeply touching love for classic blues 78s. And when he meets his new day, she... Work, he is that he likes blues music and takes him out to listen to a band called Blues Hammer, who just play the most insufferable, macho, chest thumping, white dude blues rock you've ever heard in your life. And it's it's a niche joke, but I think as soon as they started playing, I was just on the floor. I thought that was perfect. That was an observation of something that I. I had often heard, you know, I had often like wondered why old-fashioned blues sound so haunting and beautiful and Eric Clapton sucks so much. 
But oh my yeah. god, they are just Eric Clapton, aren't they? Eric Clapton, the band, yeah. <laughs> Especially the bit where they've got lyrics like "I was out in the field picking cotton all day," and he's got yes. oh, blues hammer. <laughs> it's great that, and uh, I, I don't know. I think it's Wygoff who is like a, a real blues collector, a real like vinyl blues head. And I, I think it's it's done so well because when Seymour starts talking about it, you think, oh man, there's just some dull guy with a dull hobby. But once you hear the passion that it brings out of this extraordinarily passionless man, and once you hear the actual music, of course, which is fantastic, it just opens up the character so beautifully. I think it's it's really great. Yeah, definitely. I think especially compared to there's the bit where he has the party, which is like the other record collectors. Yeah. Who are like exactly the kind of boring, like mostly bold middle-aged white men. Yes. Obsessing over like cracks in the record and things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then he's just got his own secret room, like where he actually has the passion, basically. Yeah. And it affects Enid too, in a way that like I I suppose this is the value of having Claus collaborate on the actual adaptation, because I would not have thought from like if you gave me the comic book to adapt I would never have had a Enid discover a passion for Delta Blues I would not have thought that was inherent in the material to put it very mildly but of course in another way that's what the comic and the film are all about of people who feel trapped and alienated by the fact that nothing is authentic everything is a copy everything is passionless and plastic and you know made to be franchised of course you know skip james is going to connect with her even though it's nothing to do with her life or her generation or her frame of reference it's something that she recognizes as being honest and she's starved of that yeah and i think especially being blues works because it's seen as inherently like quite uncool. Yeah, yeah. And Enid's whole thing is she's very much obsessed with like appearances. And it's kind of that classic teenage mindset of I I want to prove that I'm an outsider, mm. but I'm going to do it in this very specific way that confirms to what other people's ideas of an outsider is. Like a punk phase, which I think lasts for about two days. Yeah, until someone criticises her for, like, not being the right kind of punk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's just... That, that might be one of my favourite scenes in the film, because it just so, like, perfectly encapsulates... Oh, yeah, that's what this character, and by extension, just being a teenager, is all about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's the sort of quest for an identity, but done in a way that isn't terribly serious i think obviously there's a lot of films about teenagers and identity around now but they tend to be about like teenagers and racial identity or gender identity 
Whereas this is just that classic crap suburban experience of going through a couple of weeks where you dress in a particular way and make that into the whole of your personality. Yeah, because it has to be the most important thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. And I think, um, I mean, Thorva Birch is just so good in this movie, isn't she? It is. She is depressingly good because I think, I believe it was mostly due to like having quite an overbearing father that she didn't really have much of a career after this. Yeah, she she had a spell after this in American Beauty where she seemed to be locked on to be a really big star. And it just never happened. I think she's circling a comeback. I saw her in a like a pretty decent supporting role in the last Black Man in San Francisco a few years back. But she, she why isn't she on Yellow Jackets? Every other nineties actress where you think, man, they should get more work is on Yellow Jackets now. Why is Thora Birch not on Yellow Jackets? She should be. Maybe it's because they're too intimidated by like her star-making performance in the Dungeons and Dragons movie. I'd forgotten about that. Yes. <laughs> oh, the, the 90s, uh, the, the turn of the millennium, I suppose I should say. That was 2000. Yeah, it was, it was a different time, you know. There was there were Dungeons and Dragons movies out in the cinema. Yeah, you know, could the, you imagine such a thing? The, the Vin Diesel was doing a car racing franchise. You know, there were there were Spider-Man movies and everything. Everything's changed now. Yeah. Few good thing we don't have to go through another writer's strike. <laughs> yes. Oh wait. <laughs> I think the right. The, I think the threat of AI is going to make all writers up their game because I've seen. I remember when I saw. I decided to watch the last Fifty Shades of Grey movie despite having not seen the first two um, because I'm an idiot. And I remember. I, does, just, does it matter that much? No, no. I didn't feel like I'd missed out on masses of plot if I'm honest. But I just remember thinking, if you put this out now, everyone would just assume ChatGPT had made it. God, yeah. Imagine the times when real, actual people wrote those kind of films. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. I love I love Thorber Birch's performance in this so much, and I love that. I mean. Enid is a very relatable character, but she's not a sympathetic character. She's kind of bratty and annoying in a lot of ways, and I yeah, think I mean she's I, I unafraid of that. The thing is, I kind of hate Enid, but I kind of hate Enid because I look at her and go, "Oh no, there's too much of teenage me in there." Definitely, yeah. If you hate, if you sincerely hate Enid Coleslaw, that is self hatred. Yeah, like I, I want to go up to her and grab her by the lapels and shake her about in the same way that I want to go to Teenage Me, grab him by the lapels and shake him about. Yes. And just scream, sort yourself out. 
And her and Rebecca are, are sort of genuinely good company if you can handle it. I love their like misanthropic Greek chorus, their sort of Statler and Waldorf act at the school graduation ceremony at the start, where they're just shellacking every speaker for like all of the awful things that they've done while they they were at school. Oh my god, yeah, the, the valedictorian of I've learned I don't need alcohol to have a good time. And then get to the next scene if I could dab in like a whole bottle of vodka. And Enid and Rebecca's comments. I, I think I liked her better when she was a drunk junkie slut. Yes. <laughs> I, I think my favourites of their back and forth is when they're in like the 50s style diner. Oh man. Just and tell me how is that an authentic 50s style haircut? <laughs> I like some kind of hip hop thing comes on the radio. Ah, oh, yes, this is one of my favorites from the 1950s. <laughs> I wonder if that happened because in the comic they are playing authentic 50s, early 60s move, music, and every time a new song comes on, Enid just goes, This song sucks as well. <laughs> Could they not? Persuade the righteous brothers or anyone that <laughs> to have their songs insulted by two teenagers. I mean, you wouldn't, would you? Teenagers are literally the most terrifying thing on the planet. Absolutely, yeah. It it does it does remind me a bit of. Uh... There's a Todd in the Shadows video, one of his like best songs of whatever year it was. And it was the year that Bad Guy by Billie Eilish came out and that was his number one. And he said, she's really the first teen pop star to grasp the fact that teenage girls are fucking terrifying. Well, maybe the first pop star, but not the first piece of media. Yeah. I could see Enid, Enid just like vomiting black bile out her mouth. Yes. Maybe that's what she gets on the bus for. She gets on the bus and goes off to be the little girl in The Exorcist. Oh my god, it's all connected. <laughs> Everything's a cinematic universe now. But yeah, it's, it, it's interesting because, like, like I say, I bought the comic when it was the first collected and I saw the film as soon as it came out in the UK where it did pretty damn well. Um, it was one of those like, because 2001 was a Hollywood summer very much like the one we've just had where almost nothing made money apart from some weird postmodern kids film, Shrek back then, Barbie now. Uh, every like attempt at a big blockbuster either tanked, was unwatchable, or both. And so Ghost World was one of those little awesome indies that everyone just fell upon gratefully. And it's strange looking back on it from so many years' vantage point because you realise that clothes like a lot of intelligent people of that generation has sort of plugged away chronicling how the scenes that he was part of have changed and become more mainstream or become completely forgotten. I suppose what I'm thinking of in particular is it is it uh, is it John 
the guy who works at xenophobia and is like ironically but not ironically anti-semitic towards enid all the time and in the comic particularly he's just an absolutely fantastic satire of edgelordy alt-right guys made about two decades before those phrases existed to describe yeah it was so weird reading that like because there's there's basically a whole bit where it's like oh what's this turns out like the edgy guy who was into serial killers is also like defending a pedophile yeah who would have thunk it (laughs) or like when they're watching tv after the first appearance in the comic uh, that he makes and they realize that all of the shitty mainstream tabloid tv news is talking about serial killers and pedophiles and neo-nazis and all of the things that he's into because he thinks they make him different and i just think that is you know how can that observation that completely devastates a whole type of guy have been made before that type of guy existed like surely 4chan would have read that and thought oh shit he's nailed my whole thing here better go and join the boy scouts or something yeah, it is. Because this is literally like basically dial-up internet era, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This is the era where if you wanted to go online, you had to make sure no one was using the telephone and you had to listen to what sounded like one of Aphex Twin's more abrasive drill and bass pieces while your computer connected to the information superhighway. Yeah, so, so it's mad to think that, like, this is pre-4chan, pre-like, something awful forums. Yeah. Like, the word incel wasn't even a twinkle in anyone's eye. <laughs> and yeah, Daniel Close is just out there nailing them to the wall. It's fantastic. I I love his early uh, eight-ball short stories, but there are a lot of them that have sort of fallen from relevance in that way like the the bit in this with Enid's art exhibition where she reappropriates an old racist piece of advertising that uh, she finds out about from Seymour that's taken from a close story called gynecology where an artist takes like old racist imagery And it becomes almost like a Kafkaesque thing where it takes off so massively that everyone's using it. And he's just walking down the street and every billboard is like a a gollywog or something like that. And I think that's a great satire of a, a certain kind of 90s. It's the end of history. What does anything mean anymore? We can do anything and it doesn't matter kind of attitude. But obviously it doesn't work like that now. Nowadays, all the corporations that would have been using those uh, old racist billboards are now trying to persuade you that they're ending racism somehow. So I I like that it's... you, You can see how cleverly he keeps up with the world. He's satirizing there that even with just a few years difference he's realised that that old plot twist wouldn't work anymore and it has to be about something else. 
yeah that that is interesting because again yeah that was one of those things it felt like very contemporary mm. and yet is like from i mean not even from like 2001 from whenever he did that original story yeah absolutely yeah it's it's one of the things that makes it interesting to track his evolution um like one of his his old eight ball characters was a guy called dan pussy who was just his like his his safety valve for whenever he got too angry at being a starving independent cartoonist uh while people got big money for drawing superhero comics that he hated and the collected edition of Dan Pussy strips has basically a prologue where Dan Pussy just goes back to Daniel Close and points out that his preoccupations have now become the mass culture of the whole world. So, you know, suck it, nerd, I won in the end. It does like a bit of self-deprecation to Daniel Close. Yeah, there's that. I was glad it wasn't in the film, but I do like his cameo in the Ghost World comic. Yeah, where Enid meets him and decides he's just an absolute scumbag. Yeah, just some depressing old perv rather than what she hopes he'd be. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of transformed a bit in this, in the bit where like Enid uses her diaries the art, the art project and the teacher just whips up as oh yeah these are these are nice little cartoons but you know not yes. like real art yeah Ilania douglas as the art teacher is so great in this i think yeah i, I like it because i like that she kind of seems a bit hard to pin down of like is she the kind of bullshitty what even is art I don't know, these coat hangers, that's probably art, right? Yeah, yeah. But, like, also seems to want the best for her students. I think so, yeah, and I think that's maybe something that has has I've changed my view on coming back to the film after seeing it so, so many years ago. When I first watched it, I had just done an art A-level where I, I had some very, very sort of art teachers who were very similar to that and looked down on the fact that I wanted to draw immensely. Um, and I just found her hilarious. I found that so liberating as a satire on something that I'd been on the business end of. And now I watch it and, you know, when she plays her introductory video and it's like this absolutely abstruse piece of, like, feminist black and white video art that she's so proud of. And oh, I just... yeah, it's something like, stare father, stare father. Yes! And I just watched that and thought, yeah, I'd watch that film. And I'd, I'd, I'd love to hang out with him and see her make all these incomprehensible art pieces. I also like that scene because I identify far too much with the one kid who's like, I drew the mutilator because I like the mutilator. <laughs> and that, that I feel like is almost word for word how a lot of my heart classes went. <laughs> I think my favourite was the and Andrew, why have you drawn Godzilla in the background of the city? Because mm. <laughs> I got bored and I like Godzilla. Yes. 
Yeah, that was very much it. I think the thing that I could never get my head around was that they wanted everyone to do sort of studies and loads of preparatory work. And for me, I just, you know, I I have the idea and I draw it. I ended up having to like retro engineer studies of going back and doing deliberately crapper versions of my finished work to make it look like I had this sort of perfect road up to the actual piece. I do think art gave me the valuable skill of learning how to bullshit that what I have done has some kind of significance to it. It teaches it teaches Ignit that as well, doesn't it? Like she sees that all the stuff that her art teacher goes wild about is like a tampon in a teacup. And she learns how to bullshit about the chicken logo so beautifully that it it, it sort of overrides the art teacher's common sense. I mean, she's the kind of nice, hippie, liberal woman who would know exactly what reaction that sign is going to get when it's put on display. But she's so moved by the fact that she thinks she's uncovered a conceptual artist within Enid. I think there's a lot of pathos to that character, a character who I... Like I say, I used to find just straightforwardly funny. I now really feel for them. Yeah, because again, it's like the whole thing with the scholarship is she genuinely cares. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I also like it kind of as a thing about Enid's character as well that kind of her big art idea is just something that she's stolen from other people and kind of essentially learned to say. I will do this because this is clearly what you want. Yeah. Rather yeah. than anything that means like anything in particular to her. Yeah. And the fact that we know she's capable of creating things that mean something to her. And in fact, that art journal is something that she keeps on working on and becomes pivotal to the film's ending. But she can't exhibit any of that because her personal work just has no audience. God, it's a bleak film, isn't it, really, when you crack into it? It really is. Although, speaking of bleakness, I I think the thing, one of the things that surprised me just doing a little, like, research around the film Mm. is how many people seem to think that it's, like, a depressing ending? Because I found it, like, quite optimistic, or at least, like, bittersweet. I think bittersweet is a good word. Yeah, I have a fondness for endings like that. I I like to go out of a cinema not quite knowing how I felt about something yet. Some people get very angry about that. I've had like people turn to me and go, what did that ending mean in a really accusatory way as though I'm meant, as though I'm the director or something. It's like, well, I don't know yet. I don't Mm -hmm. You know, and pe- people think it's cop out that it's not immediately digestible. But yeah, like I said, you could read it that way. You could say she is finally getting out of this piece of shit town. You know, things can't get any worse. Yeah, because I see it as at least like she now has the impetus to move on. Yeah. Because really, that for me was kind of her arc through the film is she's kind of just stuck in her ways. Like, she keeps being given all these opportunities to, you know, either go to college or get jobs. And she kind of just turns them down because 
really, even though she won't admit she doesn't really want to grow up. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. ending is her finally saying, you know, no, I do need to move on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's just struck me actually while we talk about this, but it's the exact opposite end of Bill ending to Billy Liar, isn't it? Where uh, Tom Courtney bottles out of getting on the train to London at the end of that, and everyone agrees that that's a genuinely sad ending. But a lot of people think this is a sad ending too, where she she does get on her equivalent of the train to London, and I wonder if maybe it's partly about the expectations of the era that in the 60s, if you lived in a depressed kind of low-income town, it was expected that, well, you pack your bags and you go to the city where there's a job. But sometime over the 80s and 90s, it became a sort of truism that you should be able to find a job in your hometown because your hometown has everything. You know, there isn't such a thing as a deprived place anymore. You can always find a job if you look hard enough. And that's persisted even as it has become objectively untrue. Yeah, and I think also as well, it's just the way a lot of these kind of films end is the expected oh, she's going to make up with her best friend and she's going to realise that it was maybe Josh she loved all along and they're going to do yes. a big kiss and everything will be fine. Well, Hollywood is very sentimental about the value of staying at home uh, from a town of people who fucked off out of their small towns to the coast at the first opportunity. Yeah, God, it's basically every Hallmark Christmas movie, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. They're and... Actually, the best thing was to abandon my successful career and just <laughs> live in this, like, tiny town with, like, the same 50 people I knew growing up. Yes, yeah. I mean, the only thing... Because new that... ideas are scary, especially if they come from those foreigns. <laughs> the only thing that could go wrong is if there's a downturn in the rural economy but when's that gonna happen literally never <laughs> especially in this town that seemingly runs entirely on christmas based merchandise <laughs> it's the disco stube chart isn't it if these sales continue through january hey Ah, they would. (laughs) You know, uh, while we're indicting Hollywood, why does Terry Swigoff not have more of a career? Cowardice, I assume. I can only ascribe it to that, because he did, before this, he did another uh, comic, but not a comic book adaptation, maybe not suitable for this show, but a comic-centric film. Uh, he made Crumb, the legendary documentary about Robert Crumb and his family. He went on to do this. And then after this like substantial indie hit, he had a big old proper hit with Bad Santa. But he just doesn't seem to work now. Yeah, I don't I don't recall him doing like a racism or anything. No, no, I don't think he's been me too so we have to assume that it's just old-fashioned philistinism. Yeah, God, it's really not fair, is it? 
Yeah, but I think anyone who can make a film that has a view of art that this film has is probably prepared for it not to be fair. Yeah, I guess Terry's Rygoff doing an MCU is probably a bit selling out, isn't it? Hello, what would you give? What would you give for his middle-aged, nebbishy, misanthropic, fantastic four movie? You know, I didn't know I wanted it until you said it just now. <laughs> and now I don't want anything else. <laughs> oh my god, I like a Teen Titans movie where they're all just like slightly out of their teenage years and have run out of the wanderlust of youth. Yes, Teen Titans encounter the American job market. I mean, make it happen, James Gunn. <laughs> I don't know, there must be some opportunities in Hollywood for him. He could do the American remake of The Flower That Drank the Moon. Graham, you know fully well I don't know what that film is. It's the crap middle brow Oscar bait film that uh, Seymour gets dragged to see in Ghost World. Oh my god, it is. Yes. That's why it sounded familiar. <laughs> I think that video star scene is the most fossilised piece of Ghost World, but it is very funny. It is. I... I'll admit, while watching it, I could just feel like as the man is like going, no, I want eight and a half, the Fellini film, and the Star Clerk's <laughs> going, well, we, we've got nine and a half. <laughs> I bet Graham's loving this scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing that triggers near visceral trauma flashbacks in me. That time when I went to Blockbuster to get Dead Man's Shoes by Shane Meadows and came out to find that they'd somehow given me Barbershop 2 back in business. God, that's... It's one of those things I kind of miss about Blockbuster a bit, just the idea of, well, we've given you a film that maybe has a vaguely similar name. That will do, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, you don't get that with Netflix largely because Netflix does not carry anything good enough to make the mix-up funny. How, how dare you? How dare you make that kind of slander against it's like Red Notice and the Grey Men. Yes! Oh man, I'd asked for a completely generic Ryan Reynolds adventure comedy and they gave me a different one of those. Oh, what a mix-up. <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Wait a minute, this is actually that new one starring Gal Gadot, which is apparently a different film. <laughs> so, yeah, I think once we're uh, slagging off generic netflix action comedies we've probably got towards the end of the show right yeah i mean it's usually that or around about the snyder cut so we may as well <laughs> head towards the rankings so it is time for ghost world to go on our big list of films 
going from a history of violence at number one all the way down to spawn at number 56. <laughs> I mean, it's weird because you're on the show, Graham, so I feel like I have to put it at the bottom of the list because that's how it works. <laughs> yes. It, well, it astonishes me, considering the episodes that I've been on, that the lowest ranked film is something that I wasn't on for. I'd assume that the stuff that I had seen would be the absolute bottom of the barrel for the most part. I know, and I'm sorry. I'd like, I'd love to correct it at some point, but I don't know if I can like physically find a <laughs> film that is worse than Spawn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're we're really talking about how far towards the top we can put this, aren't we? Indeed. I think without being too presumptuous, I'll run through our top 10. Okay. So as previously mentioned, History of Violence is number one. Uh, Road to Perdition is number two. Superman is number three. Hellboy is number four. Dread is number five. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is number six. The Suicide Squad is number seven. Black Widow is number eight, which again, I still think might have been some kind of like COVID-induced fit of madness. <laughs> it been a while, okay? You know, you'd, you'd, you'd had some time off, time to grow misty eyes. I was just so happy to see a film. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, Batman, the 1989 film, is our number nine, and Sin City is our number ten. Okay, yeah. My proposition, I mean... In terms of the episodes I've been on, I don't think it's better than A History of Violence. I do have insane love for that first Hellboy movie, and I always want to champion that because it's like, it's the nearest thing I've seen in the 21st century to a Ray Harryhausen movie, and how can you not love that? Yeah, I mean... Hellboy is one of, if not my favourite comic series, and Guillermo del Toro is one of my favourite film directors. So it would be a hard argument to get me to put pretty much anything above that. And and what you've got above that, you've got uh, Superman, which is iconic. Uh, yeah, I mean, got... like the definitive superhero film, so yeah, kind of has that, to be. If that wasn't there, none of the rest of them would be there. Then wrote petition and uh, history of violence. Should we should we put it in between Hellboy and Dread? Do you think that's a good position? I think I can be convinced. I do love me Dread, but this is also a very good film. Is the thing? It, it's one of those things where you butt up against the in heaven ridiculousness of ranking films against each other is is ghost world better than dread is like the equivalent of one of those extremely weird league of gentlemen video shop conversations thing okay but who would win in a fight between predator and sister act two back in the habit i mean the answer is sister act two back in the habit of course yeah yeah she but, can yes. have lauren hill for backup also, do worry that you found an interesting new hack to the system 
in that you can basically convince me to put a film anywhere at the risk of if the conversation goes on too long it'll completely unravel like the whole point of the show <laughs> yeah, and the audience like, will realise it's an ultimately futile endeavour if I just persuade you that none of this shit matters then you could do what, what if I persuaded you Andrew that comic books are just for dumb nerds and, and grown adults shouldn't be be ranking them so therefore put it in at number 5 oh he's, he's got me I am, of course, joking because uh, comic books are not just for kids anymore. Yeah, they're for kids and bigger kids. <laughs> and adults who weren't bullied enough at school. <laughs> so what do we say? Do we sign off on that? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to put Ghost World in as I knew number five. Nice. I'm happy with that. Well, that was a nice, easy one. I feel like I, I find it easier maybe than Mick because I haven't been on most of these episodes. So I just... I I don't have the, the memories gnawing away at me. I don't have the ghosts of films past saying, how could you, Mick? Don't you remember how much fun you had watching me? Yes, and you, you do not have the psychic trauma of the Suicide Squad argument. <laughs> yes. Actually, we will have to one of these days get you on a show with a film that you love and I hate so that you too can have the fun of being overruled because it's my show. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think what would sort of fit that category. I don't think Jean-Luc Godard has made any comic book adaptations, tragically enough. I'll have to find another director who I love who rubs most of the world the wrong way. Yeah, I mean, are you sure there isn't some kind of like bleak five hour long Polish, I don't know, <laughs> Iron Fist movie? Yes. <laughs> what, where, where the is... Iron Fist is some kind of metaphor for communism? Yes. See? Where... I think I might be writing this film myself. I know, right? We've accidentally come up with a really good idea. The worst part was Iron Fist is literally just the first graphic novel that I could see on my shelf, which is why I said it. But it works. It's like when Orson Welles needed a quick payday and he just said, uh, oh, I've got this great idea for an adaptation of, and then he looked at the book his secretary was reading, said, The Lady from Shanghai. Yeah, there you go. This, this is going to be equally as good. Yes. But anyway, until I get this movie off the ground, <laughs> that's about it from us. If you want to listen to more, you can find all episodes on the feed or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you subscribe to the show, you'll make sure you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch, our email is beholdpod at gmail.com or you can follow us on the kind of burning wreckage of x formerly twitter at behold pod and graham what obsolete and slowly dying social media platforms can people find you on 
Well, I, I do also have an X account that I'm proud to say I have not posted on for a month and a half now, I think. So if you want to follow me on that, uh, it's at, at Graham Williamson Film, which is also my handle on the functional social media platform, Instagram, where I do post a lot more. Uh, obviously, the bulk of my social media activity is on the only good social network, Letterboxd. Uh, so you can just search for Graham Williamson there to find me. I'm the host of Pop Screen, a podcast made by The Geek Show, where every week we look at a different music-themed movie. Uh, Andrew has been on several episodes of that. Much like my Behold career, some of them have been at the top rank of movies that we've done, and others have been Battleship. And... They certainly <laughs> have been Battleship. <laughs> Nobody can say that it wasn't Battleship. That's the one thing they can't take away from them. <laughs> um, I also write regularly for The Geek Show. I have a sort of semi-regular column in Byline Times. Uh, and yeah, that's that's my activity. That's where you can find me. Excellent stuff. So yeah. Find Graham on those things. Harass him about your opinions. Tell him why you think that actually Enid died at the end of the film because <laughs> you're like in your first year of a film studies course. <laughs> also, if you're a fan of the show, uh, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcast app of choice or recommended us to a friend. It's the best way for us to grow as a show and reach new listeners. So that's everything. Until next time, I've been Andrew. And I've been Graham. So long, and thanks for listening. <laughs>